Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Since he began his research in the early 1960s, the late Frank Laumer's books and articles on the Dade Battle and the Seminole War have informed and inspired many. One inspired group is the Veterans Legacy Project, or VLP, at the University of Central Florida. Project Director Dr. Scott French said Frank's research and writings are at the heart of the VLP and are a great inspiration to the team. We've invited Dr. French to join us in a later episode of the Seminole Wars podcast to share more fully just what that important and noble project is all about and how the Seminole Wars provide ample material. We've also invited University of Central Florida Dr. Amy Giroux to discuss her project for identifying every single Seminole War soldier at eternal rest under the three memorial pyramids at St. Augustine's National Cemetery. In the summer of 2019, Doctors French and Giroux visited Frank Laumer at his Dade City home, Talisman. They sought to hear from Frank Laumer himself about his research practices and to hear his thoughts on some contentious aspects of the Dade battle itself and the Second Seminole War in general. Florida Frontiers radio program contributor Holly Baker recorded the session and in October 2019 produced a 10-minute segment. Florida Frontiers is the weekly radio program podcast of the Florida Historical Society. Holly is the Society's Public History Coordinator, as well as the Archivist for the Society's Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She and the Society graciously shared their interview recording with us at the Summon Wars podcast to give our listeners an extended opportunity to hear from Frank Laumer in his own words. The Seminole Wars Foundation extends our great gratitude for this opportunity. We have adapted that interview with minor edits for clarity and narrative flow. Our listeners have heard much about Frank Laumer in the course of this podcast. Twice, he led a team to walk the 60-plus mile route of Dade's Fatal March. He co-founded the Seminole Wars Foundation. He authored three books. With the immediacy and intensity of a novel, his massacre tells the story of Dade's battle. He followed this up with Dade's Last Command, a fact-based chronicle of the overall march. Finally, he penned a novel, Nobody's Hero, about Ransom Clark, one of only three soldier survivors of the battle. About a month after Holly's Florida Frontiers feature aired, Frank Laumer died, November 18, 2019. Coincidentally, or not, that was the same day Ransom Clark had died, back in 1840. Clark was only in his 20s. Frank Laumer, in contrast, departed this world at the ripe old age of 92. Sometime after his death, one of Frank's daughters, Shorty, sprinkled his ashes on the grave of Ransom Clark in New York State, uniting the two men in perpetuity for all time. In this episode, we present Frank Laumer in his own words. We encounter his folksy personality. We hear his strong opinions on certain matters related to the Seminole Wars. We learn firsthand what a persistent, tenacious attitude he had. He turned over many stones, so to speak, to uncover forgotten or neglected accounts of what he termed this land these men. Although this graduate of the School of Hard Knocks declaimed being anything akin to a scholar, Frank Laumer's body of work says differently. 
He himself would merely say he was a seeker of historical truth, wherever it might lead him. He quipped that while he was in the land business, not the digging of bodies from the land business, to discover the truth, digging up bodies sometimes became essential. One literal stone he overturned was a headstone that belonged to Ransom Clark. Frank Lamer did so to determine if Clark had been truthful about his Dade battle injuries. A fascinating story followed, where at least one dead man did tell tales. In his interview, Frank Laumer issued an open invitation for scholars to inspect his research materials. He very much desired for future generations to continue his study, enabled from one central comprehensive repository of books, pamphlets, letters, diaries, memoirs, maps, in print or, where possible, digital form. That dream will soon become a reality when the Seminole Wars Foundation completes its Frank Laumer Library of the Seminole Wars in Bushnell. It contains more than 500 books related to the Seminole Wars in some fashion, along with priceless survey maps, unpublished letters, and an extensive digital archive of articles, photographs, period newspapers, podcasts, ahem, and videos. When complete, the Laumer Library will be fully and digitally cataloged for ease of research by visiting scholars to the Foundation's homestead. At this point, I ordinarily welcome my guests to the podcast. In this case, I welcome Frank's spirit. Accompany us as we hear his story in his own words. Frank explained how much interest on Dade's battle and on the Seminole War in general there has been in Florida during the many years of his research. In the public at in large. In the public at large, yeah. Very little. It was a total mystery to most of the people I talked to. They say was it, there was a, a battle in Florida. Yeah, it was took place 10 miles south of here. Well, I never heard of it. I said, well, it's a state park. And there was a battle there in 1835. Well, I'll be darned. And they lived that close to it and didn't even know the battlefield was existed. It's kind of strange, but it's part of the general amnesia about the war, I think. Frank himself, hailing from New York State, knew little about the Seminole Wars or the Dade Battle. But when he did learn of them, he asked a lot of questions. The answers he saw accompanied him for the rest of his life. We're in the land business, and we own this subdivision, and we had a house down half a mile from here. And one day, my family and I went up to, we had heard about there being a state park, and we went up to have a picnic. And I wandered through the park and went to the museum and asked if they had any books or anything about the battle. I'd like to learn something about it. I'd never heard of it. And they said no. All they had was a two-page pamphlet. And I thought, well, that's, that's not very satisfying. I'll go make some phone calls and write some letters and try to find some information about this battle. Well, that was, let's see, 61 years ago. I've been researching the battle since 1962, I think. Anyway, I've put in quite a bit of time on it. Um, and. I kept on writing letters and making phone calls and traveling across the country, following up every clue that I could find about the men, about the weather, about the land, about the weapons. And the deeper I got into it, um, the deeper I wanted to get. I really want to know every single thing that can be known about those men in that battle. I don't know why, because I'm no scholar. I'll let you in on the fact that 
while all of you are educated people, um, I had to, in effect, bribe my science teacher in high school in order for her to mark my grade up so I could graduate from high school. So um, I don't have a sterling academic record behind me, but I do have persistence, and I have found what I consider to be a pretty amazing amount of information about the men, about the weapons, about, about the weather, just um, everything that could bear on that battle. In reply to a question from the group about how he conducted his research, Frank Laumer had this to say. <laughs> I say even a blind hog finds an acorn once in a while. And I, of course, knew nothing about research or any of that. I, I read a lot, but I knew nothing of research. And it seemed to me that just uh, the National Archives ought to have something. So I wrote a letter to the, I don't know, to the director or something, because I didn't know what the people were who ran the National Archives and said, I'm looking for information about this battle. And, and slowly, slowly, information started coming back. They were very helpful, and I'd certainly recommend researching with the National Archives. They sent information, and a lot of the information led to other sources. The men would, in the letters that I found from some of them, uh, gave indications of where someplace they'd been or some something they had or something that led me to some attachment, some connection with them. And in the letters themselves, they would describe various conditions, like they were going to join the army. They had just come over from Ireland or wherever, and they would give information that led me to other things. And of course, then I started writing and calling Ireland into their national archives, and they too were helpful and sent all kinds of reports and information on the towns these men had lived in. And in one case, they found me a descendant of one of the men. So just like that, just stumbling along, picking up on anything I could pick up on, and just picking up the phone and calling people who ran museums. And I didn't have any background to tell them, but that I'm working on trying to find out about a battle in Florida. Over the years, 60, I, I stumbled on enough stuff that I didn't know what I was doing from the beginning. Still don't know much about it. One of the things I would sure recommend to any of you, all of you, study the reasons for that war and the reasons for the battle. What was going on? Why did the Salt Indians attack those men? I think it's a profound point and I think I know why the war happened. It should be researched by people who know what they're doing. It's a race matter, and that's why nobody knows about it, I think. That is, it's never been talked about over the years because nobody was particularly proud of the racial problems. I think that the war was caused by soldiers being sent down to carry back the escaped slaves, which in those days was any black person you saw. They'd just say, you're a runaway, you're going back to slavery. This, of course, aggravated the Indians and that were the friends of the black people. And so they started picking off some of the soldiers 
the government realized they couldn't do this one black person at a time. And so I believe these men were sacrificed in order to, like Pearl Harbor or any of the other starting points for our wars, because we couldn't come down and our soldiers were getting killed coming down to chase the runaways. And so if you had a sacrifice out there, and I believe that's exactly what this was, if you had a sacrifice out there big enough, the nation would get roused up and the government could justify formally going into battle. And they did, and it took eight years, but they finally more or less won. I think that subject, while certainly people have a question about that being what the government did. You have to look at a letter from Captain Belton, who was in command at Fort Brooke, and sent these men out. And he said that the morning they left, he was re- writing a report to the Adjutant General, and he said that we have information that there are 250 Seminoles at the big Withlacoochee River. Uh, lying in wait, but our troops, our men, are well prepared for battle, and I'm sure will take good care of themselves in effect. Well, what it boiled down to is he was sending 108 men against 250 Seminoles, and as he said, some of them mounted, which made them more dangerous. How come that never got investigated? He sent those men out on the morning of the 23rd, and it's something like 40 miles to the river. The crossing is right out there. The river's in front of it. And yet he knows that there are 250 Seminoles waiting. How could anybody do anything that stupid? It was his command, and he could have aborted the command and not sent them out. But to send 100 men against 250 would be pretty much a foregone conclusion and yet nobody's ever investigated how he could have done that. And I have the letter upstairs, and it's absolutely unequivocal, but it's one of the mysteries about the battle, and it's somewhat an answer to your question. Another reason why it wasn't talked about too much, not only were we fighting a war to put people back in slavery, but we sent as a sacrifice 108 soldiers five of them West Point. But it would be a good point for somebody to investigate. In the immediate aftermath and succeeding years, a number of people found a scapegoat, and it was not somebody who served in uniform. It was the interpreter, Luis Pacheco. Frank Laumer shares his sentiments on why that was the case. Because he was black. And you just don't go blaming um, white West Point officers for having walked into a trap. There must be some secret business going on. Well, we've got this black guy that was with him, and so we'll just say he led him into a trap. But that doesn't hold any water because Dade had been up and down this road a great many times. Ten years before, uh, he and his uh, adjutant had been the two guys in charge of the crew that cleared the path for the Fort King Road in 1827. And having built the road and having traveled it, he would hardly need a guide. He was hired, and Belton says, two hours after Dade left, 
he wrote another letter and said, I have just hired and sent an interpreter to join the, the uh, command. Well, there it is. He was hired two hours after they left. That wouldn't be what you do for a guide. They didn't need a guide. Many of the men had traveled the road, but he was clearly an interpreter. It's what Belton said in his letter. But somehow he got to be the guide after the command got killed. For many years and in some quarters, it's still called the Dade Massacre. But Frank Lomer has a different view on that. I call it massacre just because it uh, would maybe grab the audience a little. It wasn't a massacre at all, in my opinion, or my translation of the term. They did come in and finish off many of the soldiers, but it wasn't a massacre. A massacre is more of a matter of um, shooting down or killing unarmed, um, not people who had any defense. Um, somebody comes in here with a gun, like these idiots that are shooting up people in Texas and whatnot. Now that's a massacre. That's armed people shooting unarmed, unwarned, unprotected people. These were all armed soldiers. They were marching through Seminole land. In regards to how many Seminole perished in the battle, Frank Lomer defers to the Seminole alligator. I think the only thing that I know of that is from Jumper's, do you know of his interview with Captain Sprague? He was interviewed a few years after the battle and the interview is in his um, book, Sprague's book, and in that Jumper, whom Sprague was interviewing, this is a few years after the battle, and when they were coming through Tampa on the way to Arkansas and Oklahoma, and Jumper said that they had lost something like five men, but after the battle was over, they found their bodies and they buried them each. So that's all I know of it. I would like to be able to roam the battlefield with a, some kind of detector and try to find the Indian graves. That would be an interesting thing to pursue. The officers who were with the burial group, some of them did take certain things like the sash and the money belt and a few pieces like that. And they are what's on exhibit in true artifacts of that battle. Everything that I know of that existed in that battle that lasted has been taken up. But the search never ends. We can't have found everything. If we could go down in those graves again with a metal detector, and I didn't have one back in 1960, but there are probably other bits and pieces down in that grave. As for the biggest artifact from the battle, the cannon, Frank Lomer had some thoughts about where it is. When the command came up to bury the men, the cannon had been, the barrel had been torn off of the carriage by the Indians back at the battle, I mean, when the battle was over. They pulled the barrel off and burnt the carriage and threw the barrel into the pond, according to um, Jumper, who was one of the ones, that, of course, in the battle. But they threw the barrel in the pond, and when they came to bury him, the soldiers fished the barrel back out again and set it up on end over the officer's grave, and that's the last that's known of it. The, the cannon was 
called a six-pounder because the iron balls that fire weighed six pounds. It puzzled me for a long time because I thought a cannon's got to weigh more than six pounds. But that's what the thing is called, a six-pounder. But it's because of the iron projectiles. There are a lot of stories about who found it and who took it and that Grandpa used to have it in his garage and that kind of thing. We ran down every story we could find. We never found the cannon peril, but we'd sure love to. <laughs> if I can indulge you in, for a moment, when the guys came up and buried the men, they fished the barrel out and they put it up and it over the grave. In coming days and months, I'm sure that that cannon barrel would not have just stayed there. Indians roaming through the through the grounds for months or years afterward. Some of them would have been certainly interested in messing with this cannon barrel of the soldiers. And I would think that their natural inclination would be the first ones that saw it and paid any attention. The first thing they do is pick it up and throw it back in the pond. And I'd make a large bet that that cannon barrel is in that pond. And I've made arrangements two or three times with a lady who, at your, down at University of South Florida, who does underwater researching and that kind of thing. And she got a crew together of her students and had the equipment together and told me she was ready to come up with a little skiff thing that they use and go out over that pond and try to read the bottom. Well, I went to the guy that owns the property and there was no way he would allow us to go out on the pond. I felt like hitting him in the head and throwing him in the damn pond. (laughs) Anyway, I I think that cannon barrel, logic would indicate that the Indians had no use. They had it after the battle, and they threw it away. But when they came by later, and there it is still standing there, throw it away. They pitch it back in the pond. And I can't see any reason why it wouldn't still be there. And that would be an artifact worth going for. So if you all can pull any strings, or if you know somebody important and could get permission to override the owner's uh, denial and get permission for us to go out there and find that thing. That would be marvelous. Frank didn't get to see an investigation of the pond in his lifetime. But a few months later, the state of Florida acquired 40 acres adjacent to the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park that includes the pond. We await a formal research proposal, approval, funding, and permission from the state. Stay tuned. Dispatching with the dead, for the time being at least, Frank Lomer then discussed the survivors. There were three soldiers who survived. One of them uh, lived on for five years, and he claimed to have had a great many wounds, a bullet through his shoulder, a bullet through his right shoulder blade, that he had had a smashed pelvis, and various other wounds. And the more I read about that and his claims to injuries, the more I wondered if it could possibly be true. How could he, in that condition, with all those bullet holes in him, come to in the middle of the night, and in three days had gotten 50 miles back to Fort Brook, uh, crawling on his hands and knees part of the time. So, make a long story a little longer. I had a friend of mine in New York where I had found this man was buried, and I got permission from New York State 
to exhume the body, and I hired a pathologist to meet me at the grave. And my wife and my brother and I flew up in December, appropriately enough. And I can tell you it's cold in New York in December. We went by a hardware store and bought a shovel and a pick, and we went out to the grave, and we went down about five feet, and we came upon the first bone. While we pursued that, a lady across the street had loaned us her garage and set up two sawhorses with a piece of plywood on it. We carried across the man's bones across the street, and we laid him out on the plywood sheet, and I had the pathologist start with his head and go down his body and all the way around and give me a report on what he found. I had told him nothing of what this man had claimed to have done. I just said I didn't want this, these remains examined and give me a report on it. So he did and he kept telling me that he received a severe trauma in the right shoulder and he had a smashed pelvic bone in his right leg and in short he found that the man had had every bullet wound that he claimed and yet he crawled or walked, made his way 50 miles in the dead of winter he had no clothes on except his trousers he had no boots, no shirt and with these wounds he made his way back crossing four rivers and if somebody like that's not worth remembering, then nobody is. He must have been quite a man, and I've come to know him. I've held his skull in my hands and looked him in the eye socket and thought about what those hazel eyes had seen in that battle. In short, I'm quite enamored of Private Ransom Clark. I've been to his home. I went down in the basement and looked up at the rafters, hoping... He might have carved his initials, and, but I couldn't find any such thing. But it was where he had been born and where he went back to. And it's been quite a search over half a century. And people have said, that seemed pretty dumb to spend all that time chasing somebody that's been dead for 150 years. But I was certainly curious about him and how that could possibly have happened. I'm in the land business. I'm not in the digging up bodies business, but it was the only way to find out. So that's that's how I got to where I am. I have found a lot. I've got a, a family history, a published family history of the Mudge family. And Lieutenant Mudge is one of the officers who died in the battle. And that family history had a picture of Mudge, and that was a marvel to find. It was also interesting that he was the youngest of 12 children in the family. Uh, things like that I found. And that's the only family history, but a lot of stuff, it's, it'd probably overwhelm you if you started looking at it and there's stacks of it. I've got dozens and dozens of old newspaper articles about the battle, about the men, and like the, in the little town in Massachusetts that Mudge was from. They write about it, about him, and, and again, that gives background on him from the people that knew him then. When I had done enough research on this that I felt like, well, I probably got about all I can get, and I ought to make notes of this, that is extensive notes, so that what I've found won't be lost. 
and I thought I'd do an article or something. And I sat down to do an article and discovered that wouldn't cover the whole thing. So the article became a book, Massacre. And I continued the research, found out a great deal more, went to the homes of more of the soldiers. Extensive research, actually. And I think it was about five or eight years. I realized that Massacre didn't cover it well enough. So I thought I would upgrade Massacre. But there was too much. I went through Massacre writing in between the lines, literally, until I realized this won't fit. So I started over and wrote another book about it, Dade's Last Command, a title the press insisted on. And I think it was a lousy title. Anyway, those two books are in the market, and uh, I would be pleased to have any of you do any research that you'd care to do on the metal or individual men or anything else about it. Frank Laumer didn't get the title that he wanted, but he did repurpose his title for another project, one the Seminole Wars Foundation expects to publish in 2022. This land, these men, five of us are in the process of writing a total book on the battlefield. Each of the chapters will be on a different phase of that particular piece of ground, and we're titling it This Land, These Men. And I'm sure that I've talked a lot longer than you had wanted. Or, for some of our listeners, didn't even scratch the surface. We're grateful we could run this interview, Frank Lommer, and we're indebted to the Florida Historical Society and the University of Central Florida's Veterans Legacy Project for providing us a platform to explore these insights from the late Frank Lommer. He died two years ago this week, November 18th, 2019. But the fire he lit among researchers and the general public to learn more about this land, these men, in the Seminole Wars continues on. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Foundation, 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.